Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Macabre for Mortals. I'm sorry that this episode is a few days late, but I had a bit of a full-on week with having my son off during school holidays and finding time was pretty much non-existent. And it was announced on Friday that where I live in Brisbane, Australia, that we have just been in a three-day lockdown as of 6pm Friday night. And it is ending at 6pm Monday evening. Um, This was announced when we were out food shopping. And by the time I got to the end of the supermarket, it was complete bedlam. I understand that where we currently are in Australia, we have been very privileged with the little amount of disruption that we have personally had during the pandemic compared to the rest of the world and compared to other states in Australia as well. But these sudden three-day lockdowns bring you back to reality, if I'm honest. And I think we have all been rather complacent in this state. We've had the luxury of just being able to pretty much live our normal lives. But all of a sudden we had to um, put on our masks, um, wear them driving in the car. The only place that we didn't wear them was at our homes. So it was a little bit of a bring back to reality. Um, To be honest, with having family in the UK, I obviously know that it's really not the best time for them over there. And me saying, oh, three-day lockdown sounds incredibly selfish, but... I just wanted to say that I do appreciate everybody who's taking their time to listen to this and thank you very much for supporting me. So this week I'm going to be covering the case of John Price. Not many people know the name of this victim. His name is quite a generic common name, John Price. But who he was and the awful things that happened to him gives me even more reason to make him be remembered. John Price was age 44 when he was murdered. He was known locally as a friendly, good-natured bloke and he was well-liked. He lived in Aberdeen in the peaceful Hunter Valley in New South Wales in Australia. I'm going to give you a bit of background to this area, so hopefully you can picture the type of rural town that John lived in. Aberdeen is a town more famous for the highlights of the surrounding countryside than for the buildings or streetscapes of the centre. It lies in the heartland of the Hunter Valley horse stud area and is surrounded by rich pasture lands which have bred horses for all over the world. In the township, the main attraction is the historic Sedgenhoe Inn, which was built in 1837. It is now an upmarket bed and breakfast destination which has been richly furnished so that it captures an era when the town was the home of some of the richest men and women in early colony of the New South Wales area. Today, Aberdeen is a small country service centre located on the side of a hill beside the Hunter River between Musrell Brook and Scone. Dairying, wheat, 
Lacan, horse studs, cattle and sheep are integral parts of the local economy. Most traffic through the town on the New England Highway passes without pausing. If they need to take a break, they'll opt for the larger centres of Muswellbrook and Scone, which lie to the south and north of Aberdeen. Prior to the arrival of the Europeans, the area was occupied by the Wanaru people. They did already have trade set up and ceremonial links with the Calamoro people, who had also occupied the area earlier in Australia's history. Government surveyor Henry Danger camped by the Hunter River in August 1824 during his first exploration of the district. He crossed the river, discovering Dark Brook and Kingdom Ponds, two tributaries, just to the northwest of the present town site. He submitted a favourable report on rich alluvian land adjacent to the two creeks, which immediately attracted settlers. British MP Thomas McQueen read a favourable report on the rural prospects of New South Wales. And in 1825, McQueen sent stock, machinery, supplies, artisans, their families and overseer Peter McIntyre, who chose the land around Aberdeen, naming McQueen's estate Sigenhoe after McQueen's birthplace, which is Sigenhoe Manor in Bedfordshire, and his own property, Blairmore. By the late 1820s, Sigenhoe was employing nearly 100 convicts and was used as a base for explorers such as Thomas Mitchell, Edmund Kennedy and Alan Cunningham. However, McQueen's financial situation in England declined and he moved to Australia living at Sangenhoe from 1834 to 1838. And in 1838, McQueen persuaded the government to lay out the township of Aberdeen by the river crossing. By 1840 and in, a steam driven mill existed beside the river and farmers from Murundi transported their grain to this site in the early days. There were 27 people recorded as residents of Aberdeen in 1851. In 1856, the town's first post office opened, which was followed by 18, in 1862, the first police station, which was when the town was actually completed. Then two years later, a school was opened in the town. And by 1866, there were two churches, the post office, a lockup, a school, three inns, some shops, and a steam-driven mill. Not long after this, in 1870, the railway arrived. Finally, in 1891, a meat processing became the staple to the town when the Australian Meat Cutting and Freezing Company began operating there. The exportation of frozen mutton commenced in 1892 via the port of Newcastle, and 200 men were employed in the meat works within the next two years. In 1983, elders took over the town's meat works, but unfortunately the meat works closed in 1999 and it put 400 local people out of work. Still now Aberdeen has a small population. Its population hovers around 1,200. If you think about a small township that is really quite small, 
compared to the big cities that we do live in today. Now let's return to John. The alarm was raised that something was not right when the usually reliable John Price had not turned up for work on the morning of March 1st. And a colleague from his work went to see if he was okay. After noticing blood on his front door, the workmate called police. When police arrived at the house at 8am, no training or experience could prepare them for the vision of hell that they walked into. They were first confronted by a pool of blood in the hallway of the house. Blood spatter and smears were found, showing that John had tried to escape, heading down the hallway towards the front door. But his assailant chased him, stabbing him repeatedly in the back. John had been stabbed at least 37 times, but the ferocity of the attack made it difficult to count the number of wounds. Many of the stabs were deep, and vital organs like the lungs, liver, kidneys, and the aorta in his heart were hit, and his blood loss was massive. I'm not telling you any of this information to make you feel sick, but to show the amount of suffering that this man endured. Lastly, when police entered the kitchen, they found parts of John's body on the stove and placed it on the kitchen table, even with a note for his children to eat the food. His body was in the lounge and in this room also, his skin was dangling from a meat hook in the alcove. This crime is so dark and depraved, but it was the work of someone deemed as sane. This someone had planned the killing of John and knew exactly what they were doing. The thing that is most shocking about this murder is that there is actually only one killer who managed to overpower John and commit such gruesome acts on him before and after death. It was even found by the crime scene investigations that John had actually made it outside of the front door, but he was terribly wounded. His glimpse of hope was brief though, and he was dragged back by his murderer into the hallway where he finally took his last breaths of life. Police found his murderer still in the house, allegedly stupefied by cocktails and medications. This was abattoir worker Catherine Knight. John and Catherine had been in a de facto relationship for around four years. In Australia, a de facto relationship is a relationship which a couple lives together on a genuine domestic basis. 
A person would not have a de facto partner unless they live together as a couple for two years without separation. Therefore, the length of time to be considered de facto is two years. At the time of John's murder, their relationship was in tatters and his murder was a display of her utter contempt. I'm going to give a brief background of Catherine Knight, as I believe we do need to know a little about her to see the patterns of her behaviour, and how it was almost inevitable that she was going to murder eventually. I do not personally believe that it is all singularly down to nature or nurture of a person that makes the eventual finality of what they become but rather a mixture of both. And also the fact that as humans, we all have free will and the power of choice. Apart from a few mental illnesses, which can cloud what a person believes is right or wrong. I do believe that we can choose at any age to learn and change our behaviors and attitudes, as long as we learn to keep educating ourselves. As one of my great uncles said, It is stupid to die ignorant. Catherine was one of eight children and first married a truck driver called David, with whom she had two children with. Her relationship with David lasted a decade, although she was unpredictably violent towards him. And he never raised a finger against her, not even in self-defense. He would simply walk away. Her attacks on David would include choking him on their wedding night when she judged his consummation of the marriage not to be up to expectations. And one morning he woke to find her sitting on his chest, holding a knife to his throat. When he opened his eyes, she said, see how easy it is. I'm going to make a statement that I don't think David is in the wrong for not walking away from her earlier than he did. But from what he has talked about since her conviction, he was really scared. This harkens back to the domestic violence episodes that I've previously just done. But this is a way to see that even 20 years before she murdered John, she was already displaying behaviors of a potential murderer. After the failure of the marriage, Catherine began a brief de facto relationship with another man called David in 1987. The couple eventually had one daughter together, but Catherine took out a few apprehended violence orders or AVOs against this second David. But he told police investigating John's murder that he was the one who was constantly being attacked including one time when Catherine stabbed him with a pair of scissors several times. And in an act of pure malice, she cut the throat of their eight-week-old dingo puppy. This really does sort of set the stage for what she financially, well, in the end, does commit murder on a human. But this is technically murdering a puppy is something equally as defenseless and innocent. And it just shows her escalation. But I feel that she'd already started 
in her first marriage to show these behaviors. I just think that she is a very dangerous woman. Catherine had one more relationship for three years, which produced a son before she started her relationship with John Price. Their relationship was marred by Catherine's malice. And as the end loomed, she demanded a share of John's house and even said in front of witnesses, you'll never get me out of this house. I'll do you in first. On Sunday, the 27th of February, just two days before the fatal attack, John and Catherine had a violent dispute and John fled, taking refuge with a friend who lived nearby. John told his friend that she had menaced him with a butcher's knife, one of the tools of her trade as an abattoir worker. Police interviewed both John and Catherine that night but the conflicting stories left the case unresolved. 16 months before the murder, Catherine had told her eldest daughter, I told him if he took me back this time, it was to the death. And if I kill Pricey, I'll kill myself after it. She had also made a similar claim to her brother five months before the murder, but this time with a different twist on the ending. I'm going to kill Pricey. I'm going to get away with it because I'll make out I'm mad. On the morning of his last day alive, the 29th of February 2000, John sought an AVO against Catherine at the Scone Court Chamber Magistrate. Unfortunately, it was too little too late. But this was not John's fault for getting this when he did. As we can see from Catherine's relationship history, she was a ticking time bomb to murder. Unfortunately, with a lot of reasons why we all seem to listen to true crime is because we want to know what we can do differently. So we don't put ourselves in the same situations, which is something that I have been hearing time and time again. But really, as we can see from here, nothing that any of the victims in this case did anything wrong it was all Catherine murderers just really just stop murdering I know we have to find safety ways of protecting ourselves from these people as it doesn't seem to be like people will stop which is unfortunately one of the saddest things I can hear but for the whole 20-30 years before John's murder it seems that Catherine had already taken the first steps on her path towards murder. She was already actively seeking it out. Catherine was arrested the day after John's murder and finally interviewed on the 4th of March, but she claimed she did not remember the murder and she told the police the last time I recall was, I don't know about your dates, but I went inside and watched a bit of TV. Psychiatrists, however, did not believe her claims. Their challenge in this most confronting case 
is to decide whether Catherine was legally fit to stand trial. And they concluded that she was. The problem is not that she did not know it was wrong to do such a thing, but that she did not care about doing them. Callousness is not an absence of knowledge of what is right or wrong. Catherine pleaded not guilty and her trial began in October 2001, a year and a half after Jordan's dreadful murder. But because of the high probability that the graphic evidence would cause serious distress to jurors and the result of them being discharged, the judge drafted in reserves. Then Catherine changed her plea to guilty. When Catherine was sentenced, Justice O'Keefe noted that there was nothing to mitigate the enormity of her crime. This essentially means that she is fit and sane to stand in front of the court and nothing from her past can excuse her for what she did. And there was nothing that John did that forced her to do what she did. Of John, the judge said, the last minutes of his life must have been a time of abject terror for him. And they were a time of utter enjoyment for her. The judge observed that Catherine was an ongoing risk to the community and he found the only appropriate penalty for the prisoner is life imprisonment and that parole should never be considered for her. The prisoner should never be released. I have to say that the hard line taken by this judge is one that we don't see often enough on criminals like Catherine. She had shown in all her previous relationships to have violent tendencies and also the potential to murder. Really, it was more when she was going to murder rather than mm, she might. This hard line of not giving parole and saying that they are a risk and never to be released is not something that we see very often in Australia or actually in the UK. There's very few cases which I know that criminals aren't offered this. One of them is actually Milo Hinley and Ian Brady was certainly one in the UK and one, of course, which is a woman like Catherine Knight. And to be honest, sometimes I think women do kill differently and usually I say usually but a lot of the time it is for a reason there is lots and lots of stories of women who have been oppressed so many times over and over and then they've snapped but with Catherine this wasn't the case she enjoyed violence she worked in the abattoir. She did a lot of the killing of the pigs in the abattoir and she enjoyed it. She hung her knives above her bed and had them there for pride of place or easy access. I just think deep down to her core, Catherine is an evil person. 
And even though the family life which she was born into wasn't the best, there are lots of people who are born into poverty, into cruel families, and they take the line of, I'm not going to be like that. All in all, John seemed to bear the brunt of all of Catherine's pent-up rage that she'd bottled up for all over the years of her life. She had the potential to murder any of her partners. But John, unfortunately, was the one who her target ended on. Her love of knives and violence was a recipe for disaster. But only she could have stopped herself at any time. But she didn't. My sources this week were mainly from news articles from Seven News and ABC News and a background of Aberdeen from aussietowns.com.au. As I said, I have been very heavy on the true crime for a few of the episodes. So next week I'm going to be covering the legend of the Pied Piper and everything that seems to surround the story as I think it's something that's really interesting to try and delve into. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. Please follow us on Instagram at Macabre for Mortals. Join our Facebook group at Macabre for Mortals podcast. Or send me through an email at macabremortals at gmail.com. I hope you all have a great week and try and stay safe in this pandemic world. Thank you. Bye now.